0: All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the DealMaker Show. So today we're going to be talking a lot about payments and fintech. So um, I hope that you're all excited about this segment because there is a lot going on here. So I guess uh, really, you know, from scaling to racing to moving from one country to another, I mean, it's, it's going to be, you know, filled with, with great stories, too. So I guess without further ado, let me welcome our guest today, Michael Muller. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to uh, be on the show. So, originally born and raised in Germany, more specifically in Western Germany. So, how was life growing up there?
1: Oh, it was great. Um, it, it was uh, it was fantastic. Small-town Germany, right? Um, so, um, a very protected uh, upbringing in that respect. So, uh, yes, fantastic.
0: And how was... I mean, was there any influence, perhaps, like, in your family? Did you have, like, anyone in business or having their own business or what would you say that that ended up motivating you to become an entrepreneur was there any influence there or you perhaps developed that later on
1: Uh, much later on so um after school i actually started working for a bank um, deutsche bank um, at the time so in germany we have uh We have that uh, apprenticeship system, uh, so vocational training that you can do in the bank. So I actually wanted to become a banker, and I did become a banker. um, And I
0: was a banker for many years before I became an entrepreneur. So then let's talk about that, because your first gig was in Deutsche Bank. And there you were for, for quite a bit. Even moving from London to Frankfurt, you know, then back to to London. I mean, it's been quite a ride right there. So, how was it working? You know, for a bank as big as as Deutsche, what did you learn there?
1: Yeah, it was a it was a great time, and I'm immensely uh, grateful uh, for 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 the time that uh, that I could spend there. Um, and I learned a lot, um, and I also learned a lot of uh, skills and. Um, and, and background that is still relevant uh, to this day. So um, obviously, you know, like any of these big banks, it doesn't feel like uh, you've been there in a single job or in a single environment for uh, more than twenty years. So mo- you move around a lot. I did move around a lot. So I spent um, uh, some some time in Germany. Uh, I worked for them in Singapore, in Sydney um came back to Germany, um, worked for them in London. So they'd give you a lot of opportunities. But very early on, I sort of gravitated towards um, one particular area, and that was transaction banking and payments. Um, and I thought it was really interesting. I think many of the listeners will probably think there's not much in it from a, a sort of payments point of view, you know, what could possibly be interesting about uh, payments. But when you look a bit closer, you find out, that it's a very interesting sort of uh crossroads between banking and business on the one hand and technology on the other and I think that always fascinated me and it's always uh, uh, it's still fascinating me uh, to this
0: day. So in this case obviously you know the while you were in deutsch I mean many many things happened. I mean obviously one of them was getting your perhaps MBA uh and and I'm and I'm sure that 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 experience for you was quite unique because you were a little bit older than perhaps your classmates. Is that right? (laughs) Well,
1: I wasn't so much older than my classmates, but I was still older than uh, probably most people who get their MBAs. It was an executive MBA and I got the opportunity to spend some time at INSEAD um, after um, sort of almost 20 years in banking. And uh, that was fantastic. So uh, you really appreciate the opportunity to to listen to interesting lectures uh, to meet people from other industries and really spend some time to think about uh, the business uh, think about trends uh, and um, yeah also get the you know take on the challenge of uh, sitting through exams and um, see if you can still do it so it was a it was a fantastic time uh, deutsche bank allowed me to to take a bit of time off uh, to, to achieve that. So um, I basically called it a half sabbatical where I was basically working part-time for Deutsche whilst I was uh, on campus uh, in, in France and uh, in, in Singapore and in Abu Dhabi. So um, really, really good time, and uh, I learned a lot.
0: And would you say that this perhaps was one of the key factors in planting that seed as an entrepreneur later?
1: Um <laughs> It's very hard to tell. Um, so, you know, I think my, my fellow students uh, will probably say no, because, you know, all I was talking about at the time was uh, was banking and uh, my career in, in Deutsche Bank. And I'd already I had a career in Deutsche Bank. Um, and uh, we should also not forget this was in 2010. So that was just after the financial crisis. And uh, we had gone through some really interesting times. So at that stage, I, I think I would have described myself uh, still as a career banker.
0: Got it. Uh, obviously, still, while I doce, you know, once, once you go back, um, you know, there was one of the moments that you were living there. It was saying uh, the 2008, you know, crash. Uh, and, and I believe that this was one of the most tense moments that perhaps you experienced. So how was that for you?
1: Yeah, no, it was uh, it was indeed uh, very tense. And um, at that stage, I was responsible for uh, non bank financial institutions, uh, and that included uh, you know a lot of the hedge funds, a lot of the vehicles that uh, were used for uh, securitization, a lot of interbank payments. And uh, you know, all the rest of it, and the I, I think the interesting thing at that stage i mean at the time it wasn 't so interesting; it was just tense, but uh, you know the, the payments work um, when when there's liquidity and money is going around um, and uh, you know in a crisis situation like that, liquidity dries up, credit lines dry up between financial institutions, so we were frequently in situations where you had to make decisions about releasing payments. Um, that were um sort of life threatening either for your customer or for the bank because the amounts involved were big enough, and if it had gone wrong, it would have added to the woes of the time um and uh, it would certainly it could have uh, had the potential to bring some some parts of the industry down so every afternoon uh we were sitting with our risk teams with our senior management teams with our technologists just before the cutoff times and we were scrambling to basically find the liquidity to make those payments. Um, And uh, from a payments perspective, probably the most uh, exciting, but also tense time uh, that uh, I've lived through in my uh, banking career.
0: So, So in this case, I mean, talking about your banking career, I mean, obviously a very extensive banking career. I mean, we're talking about about 20 years or more, where you went then from Deutsche, then you did Barclays, RBS, you know, a little bit of everything and jumping around. So that really gave you like a great perspective on, on the space and perhaps the problems no, and how to bring a solution. Now, when we're talking about a solution, bringing a solution, at what point would you say that your baby, Form 3, started to really incubate? And, and what, would that, what, what was that process like until you said, you know what, I need to take action I need to take the leap of faith. I'm living this career of decades that I put all my life into, and I'm going to start something that is completely the unknown.
1: Um, yeah, so I was um, um, I was at Barclays at the time, and uh, you know at Barclays I was um, responsible for uh, cash management, uh, which is basically all of Barclays payments, um, online banking channels in the corporate space and a lot of uh, corporate liquidity. Um, So a fairly big business, so um, our products were uh, generating revenues of about £2 billion and um, I had um, a lot of product responsibility and a rather big team of about 500 people in in, in the UK, in Europe, in Africa, uh, with APSA um, in the US and in Asia. Now, uh, what I also had was um, a what we call change the bank budget, uh, which is basically the money that you put aside for investments in technology. And uh, that was quite sizable uh, in Barclays, and as it is in most major banks. Um, and uh, the frustration that I had over many years is basically that such a large part of that budget did not actually go into innovation. It went into keeping the lights on. It went into regulatory and mandatory initiatives. It went into software upgrades and um, and similar things. So um, really investments that did nothing for the end clients um, that uh, banks needed to make to um, ensure that uh, there is resilience in the system and stability and all that. But it was really frustrating that so much money went into this and that kind of um, led to the conclusion on my part that most of the technology that you could actually buy is not very good. If it requires that amount of investment to just keep the lights on, there must be a better way. That coincided with um, the fact that cloud-native computing became a thing um, and uh, it was about uh, four and a half, five years ago uh, where uh, I think A lot of the technologies around that uh, sort of reached the level of maturity that you could actually consider using them for mission-critical services in in the financial industry. Um, So a few things did come together, and, uh, you know, that kind of sparked my interest in uh, trying to find an answer to the question, how could you apply these new technologies, component-based architecture, uh, microservices, APIs, you know, all of that in, in a payments back office, uh, which is not not a natural starting point uh, for, for any of that. Um, and uh, that's really where the idea came from. And um, when I came across a few investors who were kind of working on a similar idea, uh, there was a meeting of minds. And, um, yeah, that was really the birthplace
0: of uh, Form 3. So then what were the next steps?
1: Well, um, you kind of, um, you know, I'm, you kind of slip into this, right? So, um, you know, it was uh, obviously working with those investors to form a company, um, trying to find like-minded people. Um, and uh, the most important ones for me at the time were, I needed to find a chief product uh, officer and I needed to find a chief technology officer and uh, also chief customer officer. So people who were willing to come with me on that journey. So I think it was the 15th of August, uh, 2016 when the four of us rocked up in a Regis office and somewhere near King's cross in London. And uh, we had a company and um, a few hundred thousand pounds of
0: seed capital. Mm. Interesting. So then, so then for the people that are listening to really get it, to really get form three, What ended up being the business model?
1: So the the business model is actually quite simple. And um, that is, we take care of payment processing in banks' back offices. Um, So what does that mean? Um, So I I think uh, all of your listeners will have a bank account somewhere, and um, everyone will have a way to access that bank account, either through a mobile application or through an online banking system or through ATMs or whatever. You use, um, and we're not dealing with that, so we don't we don't build any technology that uh, customers can use to initiate payments. But then the next uh, the question is, what happens once you have initiated that payment? And that's basically where we come in. So we pick up the payment, we validate the payment content, um, we uh, convert formats, uh, we take it through a whole range of different processes. And uh, we hand it over to uh, what we call a gateway, which effectively connects that bank to the clearing and settlement. Um, The clearing and settlement in most countries is a centralized infrastructure that deals with uh, the exchange of value between um, the banks um, more and more in real time, uh, which basically means that payment message goes to the clearing system, arrives on the other side and becomes an inbound payment. We also process the inbound payment. Uh, We take it through workflows and basically then hand it over to the ledger in the front end. So um, no end customer will ever see our technology. So it it is something that runs deep in the bowels of a bank. But it's quite crucial and uh, quite an important part of a bank's infrastructure because it really uh, means that banks can actually execute payments 24-7, 365 in real time and when i say real time it is obviously very fast um so uh the average payment uh, that goes uh, through our platform takes about 500 milliseconds to process end to end
0: and obviously in your case i mean going from banker to a tech entrepreneur i mean that's quite a transition so was it was it that hard for you
1: um Yes and no. And uh, you know, when you start that journey, you don't really know uh, what that would actually look like. Um, as I said uh, earlier, I I did have a decent amount of interaction with technologists, and uh, you know, I was basically as a in my product role responsible for a lot of uh, technological innovation in banks, and that means I did interface with uh, software engineers and project managers and all that. However, um, Running a tech company is uh, is quite different from uh, working in, in in a large bank. Uh, first of all, the company size is obviously a lot uh, a lot smaller. Um, we're about 180 people at the moment, growing quite fast. Um, but also, I'm working with engineers um, and uh, product managers a lot more directly, and that's really exciting. Uh, if you can bring together. Deep product expertise with uh, some of the best engineering that is available in the market in a very agile format. You know, it's fantastic and really exciting. But it required me to adapt. And the biggest um, requirement there was obviously to move from what is still a prevalent uh, sort of project methodology in large banks. So, from a waterfall type methodology onto something that is a lot more agile and a lot more flexible, a lot more effective when it comes to uh, building high-end technology. So I learned so much on the way, but I'm also um, very grateful for the people who came on the journey with me to help me build that um, organization, and that company culture
0: that delivers these results uh, to customers on a daily basis. And as we're talking about learnings, I mean, there was a major pivot that you guys went through. So, so what happened there?
1: Well, um, when we started the company, uh, the idea was to uh, make uh, a payments environment uh, available to uh, customers um, on an end-to-end basis. So uh, the idea was if it's hard and expensive for Barclays to uh, maintain that environment, it must must be so much harder for smaller banks, payment service providers who don't have the same kind of budget. So the idea was to go into the market and basically find those technologies deploy them in the cloud, uh, make them work end to end, and make the, um, the product more outcome-based in terms of providing a payment service that um, digital banking providers and payment service providers could use. Uh, so we started off on that journey and we went around the marketplace and looked at various technologies uh, that uh, we wanted to deploy Every single time we came back from any of those meetings with the big software vendors who were all quite happy to sell it to us, we uh, we, had a, we had a conversation internally and the view was that none of that was actually built for the cloud and none of that would actually be effective in the cloud and would give us any of the benefits that we were trying to achieve. So after six or seven months, we had that sort of conversation about what do we do, what, where do we go from here? And um, we decided to build it ourselves, so not rely on third-party technology at that stage, but build it from the ground up. And um, in hindsight, that was a that was a brave move. It wasn't an easy move uh, to to uh, you know fully uh, invest in IP, um, but it was the best decision uh, we made. Um, so it took us about a year from that decision. Before we actually went live with the first product for a bank, but um, even that I think was an amazing achievement. So to build weapons-grade, fully scalable, highly secure technology that a bank can actually use uh, in that time frame with that budget that we had available was a big revelation. And so and that's when we really, when I thought if that is possible, there's so much more you can do with it with that technology, and that's really the path that we're on.
0: Got it. So so one of the things that uh, that is true here is that obviously, you know, you embarked on this path and, you know, you were pushing along. But then obviously there was a, a breaking moment in 2019 with tier banks moving into cloud native technologies. So tell us about this. Yes, yeah,
1: so we always thought that, um, you know, large banks and small banks would all move to platform-based architecture at some stage. So, uh, you know, from my own experience as a banker, I knew that the uh, the cost base of uh, legacy architecture will no longer be sustainable, um, that there are security issues with legacy architecture uh, that you can't necessarily fix within the uh, environments that banks are running. But also, and most importantly, that legacy architecture does not give you the agility that you need to bring new products to the market. So increasingly, you know, the tier one banks were falling behind in terms of the technology choices that they made in comparison to the digital challenges, you know, the N26s and the revoluts of the world. Um, and so we knew that at some stage, um the, uh, the big banks would actually uh, wake up and look at this technology and come to uh, the same conclusions that the challenger banks would actually come to, and, but we didn't know when. Um, so it was really interesting when at some stage we received the phone call from a Tier 1 bank uh, to uh, basically request the quote for uh, all of their uh, core volume uh, that they wanted to transfer to our platform. And um, that was uh, bigger by order of magnitude compared to anything that we had seen previously. And uh, we thought that this is really an interesting uh, sort of exercise that we would go through, but not necessarily. We didn't necessarily think that it would actually happen at that stage because uh, we were a company with maybe 100, 120 people on the payroll and, uh, you know, processing these kind of volumes. we 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 thought might be might be a bit of a stretch now we worked through that we worked through the rfps uh we um went through those workshops with these banks and um and i'm very happy to say now that they've have made the decision to transfer these volumes over to us um that they fully buy into our vision of a cloud fully cloud native uh, technology stack and um that um, the tier one bank segment at the moment is the one that is actually growing the fastest in our uh, customer portfolio. We're also dealing with smaller banks, digital uh, banking providers and, and payment service providers, um, but increasingly uh, we're working with uh, some, of, some of the largest banks um, on the planet who are all uh, very keen to... Uh, take the benefits uh, of uh, this technology and make that available to their customers.
0: So obviously to enable this, it requires money. So how much money, Michael, have you guys raised today?
1: Well, we've um, we've basically, uh, we went through um, uh, four funding rounds so far. Um, so I think we've raised, if we exclude the secondary, so we've, we've um, already given some money back to a very early Uh, investors if we exclude that we've raised about 45 million pounds to date
0: um what if we include the secondary the the
1: secondary that that would have that would uh, take us above 50 million uh, pounds got it very cool Um, and um yeah that's been um that's also been an interesting journey obviously um Not being a serial entrepreneur, um, you know, many of these uh, funding rounds were a first for me, all of them actually. All of them were different, um, but um, all of them had a good outcome uh, in the end. So a seed round with angel investors, an A round with early institutional investors, a B round with first proper VC engagement and strategic funding round that we announced in the summer with uh, some very large uh, financial institutions coming in, uh, plus more
0: VC money. So which one would you say, Michael, that was the most challenging for you guys?
1: Um, the strategic investment round, by far. Um, and that is, um, so we were talking about uh, uh, three strategic investors who were sort of driving this. Uh, one of them will has yet to be announced, uh, that, that will come in the next uh, couple of weeks or so, but um, the, the challenging Part of that was basically that uh, we had to land major commercial contracts, which are sort of the precondition for the investment and the investment, uh, all at the same time with three different counterparties. So um, you're you're talking about six major enterprise contracts plus six individual, uh, sorry, three major enterprise contracts plus uh, three major uh, investment documentations you know, to land all on the sixpence at the same time um, was was complicated and uh, probably the most complex one that we've done uh, to date.
0: I can imagine. So, I mean, obviously, when you are doing around and for something so specific, you know, like with around financial technology, I'm sure that you were looking for perhaps past experiences and how you were able to leverage some of that institutional know-how or even perhaps network of those investors so what were you really looking for in those people that you were that you were bringing aboard
1: well for me the most important thing is um that they they really buy into the vision um for the business and um again the angel investors um gave us the benefit of the doubt uh the funds uh, so we're working with uh, Draper Esprit and uh, 83 North uh they've been um, believers in the business uh from very early on and um and that's important to me and then the strategic investors obviously they're buying our product and uh i think that's probably the best endorsement you can get uh, for your for your strategy um that they are willing to enter into uh a 5 or 10 year contracts for um the provision of core technology to the bank um so that's a massive um endorsement um of our technology and also the trust that they place in the company so that is a very important thing for me that uh, you know they become part of the team and um you know i look at the uh, this is a sort of a, really a team exercise uh, the board and the strategic advisory board the investors and staff they all need to pull in the same direction so to have um, investors who believe in what you're doing um, and are willing to back it um, either through those commercial contracts or the investment that they make in the business is really important to me.
0: Absolutely. So so in this case, I mean, there's a lot going on around fintech, a lot going on around payments. I mean, wh- where do you think that your space is heading as a whole?
1: Yeah, so the... the... I think for me, the whole um, notion of fintech as a sector is a bit of a difficult one, uh, to be honest. Um, yeah. And uh, I would not even uh, necessarily think that we are a fintech company uh, because we're not a regulated financial service provider. So I think we're lacking the fin in the in, in that. Uh, so we are a tech company. <laughs> so, okay we're basically providing high-end technology to regulated financial institutions, which is not exactly new, right? So banks yeah. have always bought technology and uh, they've always tried to buy the best technology. So um, from my perspective, um, I think we are uh, in a very interesting space where on the one hand, we, we're using an, an, uh, cutting-edge technology. So all, all the very latest tools, fully cloud-native uh, infrastructure, uh, hybrid cloud and multi-cloud deployments, APIs, Kubernetes, Go, and, you know, all these wonderful things. Um, on the other hand, we're able to deliver that to a very large organizations who are a lot more used to buying on-premise technology and license-based products that they can fully control. So I think we have a, uh, a team in Form 3 that is able to get um, get us uh, through those vendor onboarding processes, security reviews, assurance processes, uh, testing and everything that the very uh, large banks would actually do to um, ensure that uh, we are safe on the one hand, but we're doing this by using uh, 21st century technology. And uh, that is a very in- exciting um, prospect for me. Um, because uh, that is exactly what uh, the industry needs. Um, so better technology across all banks uh, to provide uh, better end customer outcomes. Um, and uh, whether you call that fintech or just technology, I, I'm, I, I'm not so sure. So uh, I would probably always describe us as a technology provider as opposed to a fintech company.
0: Understood. And, and Michael, for the folks that right now are tuning in to get an understanding of the size of Form 3, I mean, is there anything that you can share around perhaps the number of employees or anything else in terms of numbers?
1: Yeah, so we are about uh, 180 uh, people uh, in the company. Uh, about half of those are software engineers. Uh, we have a fair number of product managers and analysts, um, a sales team. An ops team, a relatively small ops team actually, and um, yeah, uh, uh, finance and, and and HR and a few few other functions. Uh, we are in fourteen countries. Interestingly, um, we have a fully remote model, um, so um, all of our staff can work from home one hundred percent of the time. And then we have we've had that from day one. Uh, which obviously positions us quite nicely, and especially this point in time. Uh, we didn't have to make much of an adjustment to our operating model when COVID hit. Um, we have an office in London. We have another office in Amsterdam. Uh, but as I said, we're hiring people, in particular software uh, developers in, in, in 14 countries in Europe, uh, which gives us uh, really good access to a much wider talent pool. Uh, we're, we're growing very fast. Um, So we're hiring between 10 and 15 people a month. And um, we're also looking at um, going into new territories and new geographies uh, in in 2021. So uh, at the moment, uh, we are uh, servicing customers uh, in the UK and in Europe. And uh, we're getting ready for uh, stepping beyond that and also building connectivity to clearing and settlement systems in other geographies
0: so to follow up on this michael i mean you were touching on on you know how fast you guys are onboarding people and and the fact that everyone is remote and that is the new normal that we're living in so what what have you learned perhaps around effective remote work because for you you were used to the banking old days which is everyone is in an office so i mean i'm sure that this for you has been also an adjustment and you know just wondering you know what has been, you know, that lesson for you around this, and and I think that it could be also very inspiring and 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 very telling for some of the folks that are listening right now and figuring things out around remote work.
1: Yeah, and uh, what we uh, what we uh, realized very early on is that remote working is a lot more than just telling people to stay at home and use Zoom. Um, you you need to build a culture around uh, remote working. Um, and to be honest, it's actually easier if everybody's remote as opposed to just some people being remote and the rest of the uh, the team in the office. Um, you need to build a culture around um, engineering. Um, we uh, we do a lot of pair programming, um, which uh, we've done from day one. Uh, you need to uh, put in place an operating model that ensures that there is a um, good communication flow um, you need to put in effort to also build and maintain company culture, uh, which requires again a lot of communication um, and uh, a lot of creativity around getting everyone involved um, in in the company uh to ensure that people are not just switching off or just uh, are not you know bringing themselves and their creativity into into the company so um it requires effort. And uh, it requires effort to sustain it. So I think many of the companies who, and we're talking to a lot of them because they they kind of like what we're doing and they want to learn from it. So I think many and in 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 the in the business who haven't had that, are probably now getting to a point where the initial excitement of everybody working from home is kind of gone, and it's it's a lot harder now to sustain it, uh, to sustain the momentum you need to have onboarding procedures, um, that are fit for purpose. Um, so, uh, and to be fair, that was a bit of a change for us because even though we are fully remote, we used to bring in people when they started with the company for the first week or so to meet other people, you know, get to know, you know, colleagues and stuff, and we can't do this right now. So we have that strange situation where, um, a good number of people in the company have actually never met anyone else uh, from the company in person and that means you need to really keep the communication going uh you need to organize events um as we speak the team would be on virtual thursday night drinks uh quizzes uh town halls uh we have a we have a standing all hands meeting every monday morning where we talk about all aspects of the business And uh, yeah, you do need to put the effort in to basically keep everyone involved.
0: So one of the questions, Michael, that I typically ask the folks that come on the show is, if you had the opportunity to go in a time machine and go back to perhaps 2016, when Form 3 was about to launch, and you Mm -hmm. had the opportunity to have a chat with your younger self, with that younger Michael, Mm -hmm. that was thinking about launching something, What would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self before launching a business? And why, knowing what you know now?
1: Well, uh, the obvious one is uh, I would have avoided that pivot uh, that I was talking about earlier. And uh, I would have uh, invested a lot more time and effort in uh, sort of building IP and building an engineering team uh, much earlier in the journey. So I think, you know, in hindsight, it was required for us. Uh, to go through that phase because it gave us a really good overview of where the market was. But knowing that now, I would probably tell my younger self get on with it and just build interesting and exciting technology. It's all in the engineering, and it's all in sort of building a um, an operating model around that that is, that is best in class. Um, so um, I think we could have avoided... Um, the uh wasting uh, a bit of time by using other people's um technology and um, we should have uh, built it from scratch um ourselves uh, from day one Um, that's probably the biggest learning on the way
0: amazing so michael for the folks that are listening what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi
1: well, I'm on uh, I'm on LinkedIn um as as most people um we we do have a website of course uh, uh that's uh, www.form3.tech and um yeah um look forward to to talking to as as many of you as possible we do hire a lot of people so if if you're interested in you know any of our open positions please uh, reach out if you happen to work for a regulated financial institutions and if you were in the market for a new payment systems, a system, please do reach out as well. And if you just want to
0: have a chat about cloud native technology, we're very happy to do that as well. Amazing. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker show today. Thank you for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value,